Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Yes, I took the summer off. Thanks for noticing. Had some projects that I needed to finish, which are still unfinished, but but the journals keep on cranking out papers that will not go unread. This is episode 51 for the month of September of 2021. Without further ado, let's crack open those journals, shall we? This next paper is published in GIE and the title is Role of Routine Second Look Endoscopy in Patients with Acute Peptic Ulcer Bleeding, Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. And then this is a meta-analysis, of course. And as Mark Chrislip says, I've never met an analysis I liked. Let's take a look at this one. Second look endoscopy for bleeding ulcers is controversial. Results are all over the place with randomized trials, mostly because it's often a collection of apples and oranges. So this meta-analysis looked at nine RCTs, about 1,400 patients, and according to this analysis, there was no difference in rates of recurrent bleeding, mortality, or mean number of units of blood transfused. I feel that second-look endoscopy used to be much more common in the past, and I'm not surprised by the finding of this meta-analysis. Current guidelines by ACG and European societies don't recommend second-look unless a patient re-bleeds. So the only time to re-look would be if you're not sure if the bleeding was controlled. And this meta-analysis supports that. Interesting is that previous meta-analysis on this topic actually said the opposite, stating that routine second-look endoscopy actually reduces recurrent bleeding and needs for surgery. But that was back from a decade ago, and the studies, of course, reviewed there were even older. I guess we got better at doing endoscopy after all. Overall, in this meta-analysis, about 10% of patients experienced re-bleeding in second-look group, and 12% in the no-second-look group. There is an editorial that basically says that second-look endoscopy should no longer be, quote, routine, end quote. And I agree. I really wanted to like this next paper. I really did, but I don't. This is a randomized trial comparing specific carbohydrate diet to a Mediterranean diet in adults with Crohn's disease, published in Gastroenterology this year. So about 200 patients with mild to moderate symptomatic Crohn's disease were assigned to follow Mediterranean diet, versus specific carbohydrate diet. The conclusion was that there was no difference and a little less than half of patients felt better, with very few patients actually achieving any resolution of their inflammation. Well, the good news is that about half the patients actually felt better. But why is that? Well, the authors cite many cohort studies showing multiple reasons for why this would be true, why a specific diet would make you feel better. But remember, very few patients actually achieved improvement in inflammation in this study meaning there was still disease present. Well, I've got an answer for you. It turns out that both groups of patients had prepared food brought to them for six weeks. Now, would you not be grateful and tell whoever is bringing you food that you feel better? But the good news is that the authors concluded that since Mediterranean diet is not only supposed to be healthier for you overall, not just for Crohn's, and since it's a lot easier for you to follow compared to a specific carbohydrate diet, you should probably stick with the Mediterranean diet. My big worry is that this study would be cited as evidence that specific carbohydrate diet may work for Crohn's disease, but there's absolutely no evidence of this in this trial. If anything, this study shows that if you used to cook for yourself, all of a sudden develop Crohn's disease, maybe hiring a personal chef will make you feel better, and it actually may be true for any chronic disease you may be suffering from. We've talked about diverticulitis treatment ad nauseum on this podcast how the new thing is to use Augmentin instead of Ciproflagyl for uncomplicated diverticulitis. So this next study published in Annals in June issue looked at effectiveness of treating patients with 
first occurrence of outpatient diverticulitis with either ciproflagyl or augmentin. This was a cohort analysis looking at the IBM Watson database, which includes all the market scan commercial claims and encounters in their database. They measured one-year risk of inpatient admission, surgery, or C. diff infection, all the stuff you need to know that is associated with diverticulitis. Conclusion was no difference in one-year admission risk, three-year surgery risk. When you compare ciproflagyl versus augmentin for the treatment of uncomplicated diverticulitis, now at this point you will find interesting, augmentin had a lower risk of C. diff compared to ciproflagyl, risk difference of 0.6%. Conclusion of the study was that augmentin is just as good as ciproflagyl, so you should probably use that due to the risk of hypoglycemia and depression associated with cipro. And this is fantastic, but as listeners of the podcast know, there are many instances of diverticulitis where no antibiotics are required at all. So is it really surprising that these two drugs were no different? Another point here is that only about half the patients actually had imaging, so who knows, maybe it was not even diverticulitis that was treated. Now, the authors are not blind to this data, but really want to drive a point home. If you are going to use antibiotics, you need to have good evidence to use them and understand the risks. So here's a possible pearl. Most of the C. diff risk increase was in the Medicare population, so maybe consider giving augmentin to older adults and ciproflagyl for your younger patients. Or maybe do away with ciproflagyl altogether. I think if you're going to screen for colon cancer, there are really two ways of doing it these days. If you're at least doing it on a nationwide level, either do FIT or colonoscopy for everyone. There are ongoing studies trying to see which one of these two is better, largest of which is probably the VA study by Doug Robertson et al. And that's ongoing, so we're looking forward to seeing what that's going to show. Of course, the best study would be enveloping the entire country. This next study from South Korea looked at fit testing versus colonoscopy in a population-based insurance database for over a decade, looking at over 61,000 newly diagnosed colon cancers for case group and 300,000 for controls without cancer. Colonoscopy was associated with a reduced subsequent colon cancer risk with an odds ratio of 0.29. As for fit testing, any fit exposure gave you an odds ratio of 0.74, and the more fit testing you've done, the lower your risk was. Now, obviously, you needed to live long enough to get your odds ratio really low, and obviously not get cancer in the meantime, so a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, of course. Based on this analysis, colonoscopy is a clear winner here. I don't need to tell this audience why one would choose fit testing over colonoscopy, but many patients do, and that is okay. Similar to other studies, risk reduction was greatest in the distal colon. Reasons for this has long been blamed on missed polyps and flat lesions in the right colon, which makes sense, though this study is from the first decade of 2000s, where I think the flat polyp miss rate was a lot higher. Also, now we live in the era of high-definition scopes, which are much better at helping us find flat lesions, the dreaded serrated polyps. And this study was also from Korea, and I think there are regional differences in way colonoscopies are done. So I think most of these studies will need to be done regionally, and nothing is better than a randomized trial, of course. My guess is that colonoscopy is going to end up being just slightly better than fit testing, but not astronomically so. And obviously, cost of colonoscopy is going to be way higher, so we'll still have a conundrum on our hands. I don't think there will be orders of magnitude differences no matter which way you slice it. We will see. Combo therapy for inflammatory bowel disease is pretty much dogma these days, especially for patients with fistulizing Crohn's, who are often on something like Remicade and Imuran at the same time. 
This idea went very far when we started checking antibody levels. What about other biologics, not just anti-TNFs? The answer is not so clear. This next paper is from CGH July issue, looking at rates of remission in patients with vedolizumab or ustekinumab and thiopurines or methotrexate. This is a retrospective study, and here there was no impact of combo therapy on durability of vedolizumab or ustekinumab response, and no influence on remission rates at week 14 or at one year. This is certainly interesting. I wonder what effect this has on combo therapy with anti-TNF, if any, where the evidence is much more robust. But certainly one can raise a question if combo therapy works well, or sort of well, for anti-TNF, why would it not work for other biologics? Sometimes it's fun to look at what's happening in other countries. One way to travel internationally is by looking at the guidelines from overseas. I just read the latest, greatest from the world gastroenterology organization guidelines on Helicobacter pylori. It's full of good stats and what's going on with H. pylori globally. As we all know, the burden of disease and burden of H. pylori-induced disease is disproportionately affecting populations in resource-limited settings. This key statement from the guideline is very telling. It is a major challenge for guidelines to achieve relevance across a wide variety of populations in varying spectrums of disease and with vastly different resources with which to deal with it. One of the reasons we have so many debates about disease management is because often we have different populations in mind compared to someone who doesn't agree on management on particular treatment. And here's the first disagreement between what we do in the U.S. versus other places. Quote, in resource-poor, high-prevalence regions in which diagnostic testing is not always available, a history suggesting chronic ulcer disease, periodic upper gut pain, and or past or present melanoma, suggests a high likelihood of H. pylori ulcer disease and justifies empirical eradication therapy, especially in patients with no history of NSAID or aspirin use, end quote. Now, some treatment regional differences. Australia seems to have a low level of clarithromycin resistance, but high level of metronidazole resistance. Rates of clarithromycin resistance vary from country to country in Asia, an interesting point was made that we may need to reevaluate all resistant rates once we deal with COVID, since lots of places are treating COVID related pneumonias and associated disease with fluoroquinolones and other antibiotics. So, all of this is certainly interesting. Lynch syndrome is thankfully not very common, and as listeners of this podcast know, it is not, despite popular belief, the most common polyposis syndrome. Most common polyposis syndrome is, of course, C-rated polyposis syndrome, but back to Lynch. There are four mutations, as you well remember from your board's review, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. These are mismatch repair genes. Current recommendation for surveillance in Lynch patients is a colonoscopy every one to two years, starting at age 25 to 30. And this does reduce the risk of cancer, but that's a lot of colonoscopies. If we know that lifetime risk of colon cancer varies based on your mutation, can we adjust these intervals and optimize the number of colonoscopies a patient gets over their lifetime? This next study published in Gastroenterology used published data on colon cancer incidence and prevalence and run a simulation to try to optimize surveillance, looking specifically at each of these four gene mutations. And here's what they came up with. Optimal surveillance for patients with MLH1 and MSH2 genes would be starting at age 25 and do colonoscopies every one to two years, as most guidelines recommend already. 
but if you have MSH6 or PMS2 mutation, risk is lower. So start at age 35 for MSH6 and 40 for PMS2 respectively, and repeat colonoscopies every three years. Now, of course, this is not part of guidelines yet, and this is a simulation, but remember the data for screening patients starting at age 45 is also based on a simulation. Well, several models really. Now, I don't recommend changing what you do, and as I say, still follow the guidelines, but this type of analysis is very useful. At the end of the day, this is, you know, taxonomy, and it's a way to organize your thinking, and it kind of help you think about which patients you should be worried about more and which ones less in terms of risk. And it's a way to notice things you might not have noticed before. Now let's talk a little more about fit testing and colonoscopies again. Fit testing and Cologuard are great as long as you tell the patient that they still need a colonoscopy if the test is positive. This next paper from CGH is a systematic review of what happens when we order fit testing and it comes back positive. And what if there's a delay in getting the colonoscopy? Let's say there's a pandemic going on or something like that. Does that have any effect on outcomes? They looked at five to eight studies looking at outcomes after fit testing. And though they couldn't do a true meta-analysis here due to lack of perfect data reporting in these studies, they did notice a consistent trend between longer time delays and worse outcomes. So if you compare colonoscopy that is done a month after positive fit versus longer, like nine months after positive fit, adjusted odds ratio was 1.75 and 1.48 for two largest studies. Not a huge effect size probably, but still, it's there. And what outcomes we're looking here is diagnosing stage three or four colorectal cancers versus earlier. And as someone once said, testing is like picking your nose. You can do it, but you need to have a plan of what you're going to do with the outcome. This next one is a pretty cool paper, very provocative. Achalasia can be a debilitating disorder that is very interesting. Little is known about the pathophysiology of this. We know something is damaging the nerves, something going on with the nerves, right? And I had to turn to the very back of the August issue of Gastroenterology to find this little gem of a paper, which tries to show that it is possible that varicella zoster is responsible, at least partly, for causing achalasia. They looked at samples of about 15 patients with achalasia, took some samples, and found actively expressed VZV genes in muscular tissue taken during Heller's myotomies. 13 out of 15 patients were affected and had evidence of VZV infection in that area. So this is an interesting hypothesis, of course, enteric zoster causing achalasia. It would be very strange that zoster would specifically attack the ganglia responsible for esophageal motility, but I suppose it's possible. And I look forward to seeing other studies either verifying or refuting these findings. Very cool. Who would have thought? Maybe zoster causes echalasia. In May issue of CGH, there was a good article published by great folks out of Indiana focusing on intestinal failure. Now, everyone knows about short bowel syndrome, which is really defined by anatomy. Intestinal failure is a much broader term, more descriptive, and short bowel syndrome is a subset of intestinal failure. There are five categories here based on mechanism. So let's quickly go over these. Since in the title of the article, it says what every gastroenterologist should know. So let's know this stuff. Category one is where short bowel syndrome fits. This is after bowel resection, be it for Crohn's, cancer, or trauma, or even from mesenteric ischemia. Category two is extensive mucosal disease, again, from Crohn's disease or cancer, or even celiac disease, or some other autoimmune enteropathy. Chemotherapy and radiation can do it. 
Category 3 is mechanical obstruction, stricture, stenosis, adhesions. But again, we're talking about intestinal failure here. So stones blocking, as in Bouveret syndrome or gallstone ileus. Category 4 is dysmotility. This is where you'll find that dreaded SIPO, chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. Either primary, where you don't have an answer as to why it's happening, or secondary, from scleroderma, mixed connective tissue diseases, or medications. Last category is fistulas, either from Crohn's disease or from cancer, or infections. TB comes to mind, which is much more common in other parts of the world, but also trauma or foreign bodies. Goals of treatment for all of these is fairly obvious. Try to fix the issue that's causing it and optimize nutrition. For symptoms management, you should probably try to use every tool in the basket, H2 blockers, PPIs, loperamide, codeine, definoxalate, atropine, tincture of opium, or even clonidine. Gatex is getting more popular too. This is a GLP-2 analog, sub-Q injections, and it's the only thing pretty much approved for short bowel syndrome. Keep in mind that many docs recommend frequent colonoscopies for patients on Gatex due to potential risk of colon cancer. Also, many times you'll need a surgeon involved. Best thing to do for patients with intestinal failure if simple things don't work is to refer them to a large center where they have specialized nutritionists, surgeons, and GI docs who really manage this thing all the time. Oh, guidelines, guidelines, guidelines. We really came here for guidelines, didn't you? Why would we want another guideline for C. diff? Didn't IDSA just published one? Well, GI docs don't usually peruse infectious disease journals, especially those who don't even read GI journals. Plus, in GI world, we have some special issues to deal with. So I present to you the ACG Clinical Guidelines Prevention, Diagnosis, and Treatment of Clostridioides Difficile Infections. I am glad this guideline is here, and it's a very good one. Let's go over the recommendations point by point. 1. Don't use probiotics to prevent CDI in patients treated with antibiotics. 2. Don't use probiotics to prevent CDI recurrence. So quickly, for those of you who think that probiotics are all benefit and no harm, there are plenty of case reports of patients out there getting sick on probiotics, including ICU patients who were getting probiotics to prevent CDI, who got bloodstream infections with organisms that were given with the probiotic. So not so safe after all. Let's keep going. Three, don't test random people for C. diff. You need to have symptoms, meaning diarrhea. And when doing testing, do the right test. PCR with confirmation by ELISA is probably good. Four, vancomycin is still king. Flagyl is out. Well, kind of. 125 milligrams of vancomycin four times a day for 10 days for initial episode. Or you can use fedoxamycin 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days. Flagyl is not out completely. They say consider using it for non-severe CDI in low-risk patients. But really, you should only be using flagyl if you can't get the first two drugs. 5. Use fedoxamycin 200 milligrams BID for 10 days for initial episode. Again, nothing surprising here. 6. And when using flagyl, 500 milligrams TID for 10 days may be considered. 7 and 8. For severe C. diff, what do you do? Vanco or fedoxamycin for 10 days again. 9 and 10. Fulminant C. diff. For fulminant C. diff, 500 milligrams vancomycin Q6 hours for the first few days. And you can also consider combo therapy with flagyl. And if they have an ileus, add vancomycin enemas. By the way, let's define fulminant C. diff here. And it is severe C. diff, defined as white count over 15, or serum creatinine over 1.5. So severe, 
plus hypotension or shock or ileus or megacolon. That's fulminant for you. 11. FMT. Now, when do you do this? You can try it for patients with fulminant C. diff who are our poor surgical candidates. Apparently, there's some uncontrolled data with good results. All case reports, of course. But if you're out of ideas, I guess, why not to try this? 12, 13, recurrent C. diff. Tapered pulsed dose vancomycin is recommended for first recurrence. And if your first treatment wasn't fiduximycin, you can try that for first recurrence instead of flagell or vancomycin. 14, 15, 16, FMT for recurrent C. diff. Second or further recurrence, you should probably do FMT in patients to prevent further recurrence. And you should do it via colonoscopy or capsules and enemas if one of the other methods is not available. Repeat FMT if recurrence happens within eight weeks of initial FMT. Now, there will be a rare patient whose C. difficile infection is resistant to everything you throw at it, and fecal microbiota transplant FMT gives them a benefit, and then their symptoms recur a few weeks later. That's where recommendations 17 and 18 come in. Consider prophylaxis for these patients when they get antibiotics, and there's some evidence that this may work, as we discussed a couple episodes ago. But keep in mind that don't really want to bomb these patients with vancomycin willy-nilly, so use minimum doses. And also patients who are not candidate for FMT, you can consider long-term suppressive oral vancomycin. Uh, which dose? These studies used 125 milligrams once a day, starting on the high end and then slowly tapering to daily dose indefinitely. Now we come to bezlatoxumab. Recommendation 19 says you can consider this for prevention in high-risk patients. Honestly, this drug was approved in 2016, and I'm yet to see it being used. It's expensive, and there's only a marginal benefit over placebo. For this reason, I think guidelines recommend using it only in patients over 65 and with risk factors, such as second episode of C. diff within six months, immunocompromised, or severe C. diff. Recommendation 20. Now, this is a good one, a very important one for GI docs, so I'll repeat it verbatim. We suggest against discontinuation of anti-secretary therapy in patients with CDI, provided there is an appropriate indication for their use. Of course, they're talking about PPIs here. Since you remember, there was observational data that led to the false belief that PPIs cause C. diff. And there was a possible biological plausibility to this idea, and maybe that's why it's propagated ever since. Keep in mind that in randomized trial, there was no statistically significant difference between placebo and PPI group in terms of CDI occurrence. So instead of telling people to not to use PPIs because of some magical belief, if you have symptoms and you need to take PPIs, you should probably take it and not be afraid of C. diff. And if you had C. diff, you should probably not stop taking PPIs if you really derive benefit from them. Here, instead of treating GI docs like imbeciles, this type of statement treats them with respect. That's all I'm saying. Let's move on. Recommendation 21. Tests for C. diff in patients with IBD who have a flare with diarrhea. 23. Treat C. diff in IBD patients with vancomycin 125 QID for a minimum of 14 days. 23. Consider FMT if vanco doesn't work in these patients. There are a few key concepts also thrown in as a separate category, some of which are self-explanatory, like immunocompromised patients use vanco or fiduximycin instead of flagell, etc. So I'll let you read those on your own. Overall, this is a very reasonable guideline. I have found nothing wrong with any of the statements in this guideline. So kudos to the team that put this guideline together. 
And that is all for this episode of GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Again, if you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Don't forget this podcast is sponsored by uh, no one. So the best way you can help me is to spread the word about the podcast and share it with your colleagues, your trainees, etc. And of course, give me feedback. Send me article suggestions to info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Thanks again. Bye-bye.